Welcome back to Shredder's Not Dead. If they make you bang your head, we'll talk with them or about them. And I'm very pleased to announce today that I'm joined by the very talented Stephen Wilson. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Lovely to hear that. Um, so we're talking today about The Harmony Codex, your seventh solo studio album, if Wikipedia is to be believed on that figure, um, and one of a massive career of... Uh, of not just writing, but producing um, and being involved in general in heaps and heaps of projects. Um, this latest album seems to have a really nice feel for blending, um, shall we say, pop sensibility with prog that is interesting um, and seems to capture a little bit of the best of both worlds. Uh, my little one sentence review of this is that it's a case of you know the rules so you know how to break the rules and I think that's what makes this sort of music good I'm just wondering if that sentiment resonates with you at all that's an interesting way of putting it I mean you know the, the way I've kind of been rationalizing it to myself and and to people I've been talking to is you know having been doing this for 30 years now I've been making records for 30 years the idea of making music which is generic just doesn't appeal to me anymore so what i'm looking to do really is try to create my own musical world so and you know you kind of hinted at this i think in your question is that the album it doesn't really settle into any genre it's constantly kind of confronting your expectations one minute it's ambient the next minute it's industrial the next minute it's jazz the next minute it's prog the next minute it's pop and i think the overall impression that you come away with or at least i hope you come away with is this is simply a Stephen Wilson album. It sounds like a Stephen Wilson album. It's kind of created, it's carved out its own little space, its own little genre for that 65 minutes that you're listening to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a particular favourite of mine um, towards the back end of the album, um, Actual Brutal Facts, I think, has some moments mm. on it for me that sum up what I would classify this album if i were to try and do such a silly thing as put it in a box um but it, it almost feels like you know a, a landscape or a cinematic and i know that's a term you've been using with the press cycle for this um it's an interesting concept this idea that uh you're presenting a spatial and a visual thing with music i think one of the things that I, that's been sad a little bit sad for me growing up, you know, as a teenager discovering music and now having reached this stage of my career. What's been a little sad to me is seeing that the sort of um, ability for people to engage with, particularly with albums, you know, the album is a kind of something analogous with watching a movie or or reading a book, you know, from beginning to end. Has kind of disappeared, you know. This there's a lot of emphasis now from the industry on being able to sell yourself in the space of a TikTok video, you know, 15 seconds or 30 seconds on YouTube. And to me, that's really tragic because I grew up, you know, very much engaged with the idea of the album as a musical continuum, as something you listen to from beginning to end. You kind of allowed it to take you on a journey and tell you a story. And to surprise you along the way and confront your expectations along the way. So I think it's part of being, you know, we all live in the 21st century and we're all kind of in this technological world now where we're constantly bombarded with content, you know, and all the stresses and anxieties of the 21st century. And very rarely, and I, I speak for myself too here, I'm certainly not exempting myself from this. 
we very rarely get the chance to actually just kick back, put an album on, close our eyes and completely engage with it on a very deep level, which is pretty much the way I discovered music as a teenager. And I miss that. So I think part of the process of making a record like the Harmony Codex is let's get back to that idea. Let's not underestimate the intellect or the ability of the listener to, you know, to allow themselves to be taken on this sort of more soulful experience. And I think I'm finding that, you know, it is being reflected back at me in a positive way. I'm finding a lot of people are thanking me, you know, for making, you know, making a record like this. So I know I wasn't wrong in kind of, you know, not underestimating my audience in that respect. No, absolutely. And the irony for me, and maybe you can comment on this, is that in some ways it feels the music industry is cheating itself by going down this path. And there's arguments to be made that it's led by greater forces, the market, if you will, uh, and the the ease with which people can consume short form content. Uh, but ultimately, the industry allowing itself to be taken in this direction feels like it's cheating itself out of being able to offer people these experiences because there just aren't that many records I can think of these days that do what the Harmony Codex does. Yes, and I think I think that's true. And you know, one of the one of the questions that comes up quite a lot, a hypothetical question that comes up quite a lot, and I, I see people talking about this online, is if an album like OK Computer or Dark Side of the Moon or Sgt. Pepper were to be released today, would it reach critical mass? Would it reach a mainstream audience? And I think the answer, sadly, is no. They would become cult records. They're, they're extraordinary records. So I think in any era, they would certainly find an audience. But there's no way. There's no way they would become multi-platinum, million-selling records because people simply don't have the ability to engage with music on a global scale like that anymore. And I think the other the other part of the equation, unfortunately, we're, we're getting into a bit of a dissection of the whole industry here, but I'll just make this point. I think part of the other part of the equation here is that the, it's the ease with which people can make music now means that there's more of it in the world than there's ever been before. And it's a very natural instinct, I think, that if you make music, if you make any art, to want to share it with as many people as possible. And you want to see yourself reflected back in that mirror of other people experiencing what you do. So we live in a world now where 120,000 songs are added to Spotify every single day. Every single day, 120,000 songs are added to Spotify. And that's the reality. And part of the problem is that it's so easy now. You can download a piece of software onto your laptop and make music at the same level that people used to have to spend thousands of dollars to go into an expensive studio, you know, to make would have had to do. So I think the ease with which people can make music means there's more of it, but sadly, most of it is very generic and doesn't try to confront expectations at all. So yes, I think the reality is that an album like Dark Side of the Moon or OK Computer would probably get lost now. And the Harmony mm. Codex, similarly, I think it will find an audience, don't get me wrong, but it's not realistically, I understand and accept, I accepted a long time ago, that this kind of record simply will never be able to reach the kind of critical mass that it might have been able to in the 70s, 80s, or even in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, on that topic, um, to talk about classic albums, I'm going to quickly rattle off a list of some of the artists that you've uh, remastered for recently, uh, for our listeners' sake, because yeah. um, they may not be familiar. Sorry? 
Sorry, I, I need to correct you there, Jordan. Remixed. I don't do remastering. Ah, remix. Yeah. Remixed. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. Um, however, that includes uh, Jethro Tull, personal favourite of mine, uh, Gentle Giant, The Who, Tears for Fears, uh, even Kiss and Black Sabbath, if I'm to be correct on those. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, yeah. my immediate question when I see that is... Surely, and you don't have to divulge this, but there must be secrets that you pick up from getting your hands messy in these classic pieces of art. And have there been learning opportunities in that for your own music? I think the simple answer to your question is obviously yes. But I, I think more broadly speaking, I, everything I do, I feel I'm still learning. You know, I never, I was never taught how to do anything. I'm self-taught guitar player, self-taught keyboard player, self-taught producer, self-taught engineer, self-taught singer. I kind of learned from my mistakes. And I've been doing this 30 years now. You know, I became a professional musician in 1992. So, you know, and I made a lot of mistakes, to be fair, early on, particularly. And I think I've learned from everything I've done. But yes, you're absolutely right to say that. I mean, all of these particularly, you know, when I'm working on albums from lots of different eras, the whole philosophy of recording, as I'm sure you're aware, has changed pretty much from decade to decade. Mixing an album, remixing an album from the 60s is very different to remixing an album from the 70s. Uh, remixing an album from the 70s is very different to remixing an album from the 80s. You know, the 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 technology was constantly changing and the, the the sort of approach to recording and production of records and studio production was constantly changing. And a lot of times I'm having to kind of figure these things out, you know, the hard way, just by listening and sort of trying to figure out well, what, what were they doing there? How did they do that? How did they create that effect? Because a lot of the time they don't remember. I mean, I can go <laughs> to, you know, you know, Ian Anderson, Jeff Rotel or Nile Rogers from Chic or Roland from Tears Fears and say, how did you do that? It's like, I don't, I don't know. It's like 40, 50 years ago. You're So they don't remember. So a lot of the time I'm like, well, I have to figure out how I can recreate this, this effect that they got in the original mix. So that by, by definition then becomes part of my toolbox. When I come to make my own music, I've got all these other techniques that I've kind of picked up. So as you suggest, there's always this constant learning thing going on where I'm learning about the philosophy of recording from all these different eras, all these and also different genres. You know, do, remixing an album by Chic is very different to remixing an album by The Who is very different from re remixing an album by Black Sabbath, as you can as you can imagine. So there's all these different kind of philosophies in terms of the kind of style of music that are different as well. Yeah. The other uh, the other part of that that really intrigues me, you know, on um, on one of your more recent records, uh, I believe you had both Enter Shikari and Elton John on the same record. Um, and in terms of uh, in terms of mixing work, you know, you've collaborated with bands like Opeth, who are a death metal cult classic, and you know, Tears for Fears. I don't think could be a more different band than that. Um, not trying to blow smoke up your ass here, but. The thing that I admire about your career is the ease with which you seem to be able to translate your vision for music, uh, both the stuff you're writing and the stuff you're working with others on, between very different musical languages. Um, is that something you've had to actively work at or is that something that comes easy to you? No, I've, you know, I've never, I wrote about this in, in my book, actually, which I published just last year. This whole idea of listening across genres is something that was in me right from the very beginning. And 
I didn't understand. I almost didn't understand the notion of genre. And because my mum and dad both had very different sort of listening tastes too. So I grew up listening. I I grew up in a house where my dad listened to conceptual rock stuff like Dark Side of the Moon and Tubular Bells. And my mum listened to fantastic disco music like Chic, the Bee Gees, ABBA, uh, Donna Summer, and she also listened to Frank Frank Sinatra and stuff like this. And I just thought, all thought it, I thought it was all magical. I thought it was all magical. And it was only later on when I became, you know, a, a teenager that I realized actually a lot of people kind of listen within genre. And th- so this kind of circles right back to the beginning of our conversation in a way. And what I was trying to do with the Harmony Codex, I realized a long time ago that most people have this thing of musical taste music they listen within a set of parameters this is what i like i like music that exists in this particular i never had that i never had that and i still to this day will listen to the Bee Gees, followed by a japanese noise band followed by a free jazz band followed by i don't know you know to me it's all magic it's all magical so so yes, you're right. When I th- when I sort of step back and I look at my career, it must seem strange to other people. Like on this new record, I've got collaborations with the Manic Street Preachers. I've got collaborations with Interpol. I've got collaborations with Meat Beat Manifesto, which is this kind of industrial hip hop band. Um, and to me, they're just all people I love. They're all people whose music I admire, I was a fan of, and I invited them to collaborate on the record. Interpol. Um, you know, Michael Ackerfeldt's on the record, you know. So it to me, it doesn't seem strange. And it's only when I sort of think about it from someone else's perspective that I can see how it's not a traditional way to go about your career. But that's me. That's That's been me all the, all the way from the beginning, really. Yeah. And it seems that the payoff for that is that you seem to be respected by far-reaching corners of music. I mean, I personally found myself... Uh, finding your music through Opeth, um, being uh, discovering uh, the work of Mikhail Ockerfeldt you mentioned at quite a, an early age and finding that actually yeah, I do have an appreciation for the softer stuff <laughs> when you're 15 and everything needs to be as loud and as heavy as possible. Uh, sometimes that goes over your head a little but uh, But at the same time, you know, there, there's a very wide range of uh, audience that you expose yourself to and that must be a positive thing as well for you know, like you say, this mirror that you want to reflect yourself in, there's a much more diverse range of people that you're able to do that with, but organically, mind you. Yeah, I mean, I suppose part, you know, listen, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to suggest that any of this makes me somehow quote unquote better than anyone else. It's just simply different. It's a different philosophy. And um, I I kind of understand in a way that this is part of the struggle I have sometimes with with the fact that I get very bored making the same album more than once. And I've, and I've, in a way I've constantly reinvented myself and paid a price for that because I realize all the time I'm losing older fans, but gaining newer fans. So this is kind of constant um, regeneration in the fan base. There was a time when, for example, um, when I think Porcupine Tree particularly had a lot of metal fans in our, in our audience and most of them have drifted away from me now because I haven't done anything really in that. I've not done anything with really heavy guitars for a long time. Well, actually, a little bit on the last Porcupine Tree record, but in certainly in my solo career, that side has been pretty much absent. 
um, because I felt like I'd done it. You know, I've done mm. that. Let's do something else now. I've done the heavy guitars. You know, how how often can you use the same words to say, you know, construct every sentence, if I can use that, if I can use that metaphor. Changing your musical vocabulary is the change is, is, is the same as cho- choosing your vo- vocabulary, period. Uh, why would you use the same words to construct every sentence? So I think that... Again, that's something I understood about myself a long time ago, and I understood it was going to make my career a bit of a struggle (laughs) because sometimes fans, bless them, kind of want the same thing every time. Um, (laughs) And, you know, Michael's been through this too, as I'm sure you're well aware. I know Australia is their biggest market, I believe, so I'm sure a lot of people out there in Australia will know exactly what I'm talking about with Opeth. He's been that through too with that band. And confronting audience expectation is something you do and you almost have to earn the right, the hard way to be able to say of your audience, now they expect me to do something different. Um, And it's been hard earned. I must say it's been hard earned. And I feel like it's almost been a 30 year process to get to the point where the Harmony Codex is an album I can make. And my audience kind of almost expects me to do something like this now, which is an amazing, amazing position to be in, really. Mm, that's a really nice thought to leave this on. I'm aware that we're creeping up on time. Um, if you have any last thoughts or comments you want to get out there to the Aussie fans, uh, go ahead now. Uh, otherwise, Stephen, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. I just hope that everyone will enjoy this. It is a piece of cinema for the years, so go with it. <laughs> Thanks very much, Jordan. It's been a pleasure to speak to you.